Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, September 22nd. You know, while the world was watching heads of state speak at the United Nations General Assembly yesterday, people were taking to the streets to protest in two countries where you might not think that's very possible, Russia and Iran. So watch the leaders this week, yes, but also watch the people. On the leaders, maybe knowing that the annual UN General Assembly session here would be focused on denouncing him and calling his war in Ukraine a failure, Vladimir Putin took to intimidation, you probably heard this, by calling up 300,000 reservists and saying he's not bluffing about using all weapons at his disposal. And we all know he's implying grotesquely that he's threatening to use nuclear weapons. So President Biden addressed that yesterday in his U.N. speech. Just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, Russia is calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight, and the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda to try to annex parts of Ukraine, an extremely <coughs> significant violation of the U.N. Charter. So there's President Biden yesterday. Ukraine's President Zelensky also played more than just defense in his pre-recorded speech from Ukraine, Besides being the only world leader to give his address in a T-shirt, Zelensky called on the U.N. Security Council, that's the body that makes the real decisions at the U.N., not the General Assembly, to strip Russia of its veto power, which only a few major powers in the world, including Russia, have. A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the lives of our people. The crime was committed against the dignity of our women and men. The crime was committed against the values that make you and me a community of the United Nations. And Ukraine demands punishment for trying to steal our territory. Punishment for the murders of thousands of people. So Zelensky isn't just talking about defending his country, he's talking about the world punishing Russia. And that's a bit of the power plays from the world leaders involved, right? Meanwhile, on the streets of Russia, from stats I've seen reported, anti-war protests broke out in 28 cities with at least 1,300 protesters arrested. Now, Iran's current hardline leader also spoke at the UN yesterday, But the hard line was not the headline, as there were protests across his country over the death and police custody in Tehran of a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini, if you haven't heard that name yet, you should know that name, Masa Amini, after she was arrested for not wearing a hijab in public. Women across Iran protested by burning hijabs and cutting their hair short, but if it sounds to you like they were protesting a misogynist theocracy, President Syed Ebrahim Raisi, in his U.N. speech, described his country this way. 
the nation of Iran has learned the policy of resistance and progress, which has been focused on pursuing because of an advanced and logical social order. An advanced and logical social order. Iran's President Raisi, obviously through a translator there, as you could hear, at the UN General Assembly yesterday, traffic wasn't the only kind of gridlock on the east side of Manhattan. With us now, Nahal Tusi, senior correspondent for foreign affairs and national security at Politico, for Politico and before that at the Associated Press. She has reported from practically all over the world. In 2019, she was the finalist for the National Magazine Award in reporting for her story on the plight of Rohingya Muslims in Bangladesh and Myanmar. Her latest article is Five Takeaways from Biden's UN Speech. Also, Gideon Rose, Distinguished Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, he was editor of their magazine, Foreign Affairs, from 2010 until last year, and has served as Associate Director for Near East and South Asian Affairs on the staff of the National Security Council. He is the author of the really interesting book, How Wars End, published in 2010. Of course, that was when the U.S. was trying to figure out how to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll ask how he thinks the war in Ukraine will end. So Nahal and Gideon, thanks very much for coming on, even as things continue this morning at the UN. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having us. Gideon, since everyone is talking about Russia and Ukraine, can I start with Iran? Do you have a take on why so many people are taking to the streets there right now in large numbers? Well, I mean, when you have an authoritarian regime that oppresses its people, there's always a latent discontent. And the question is, when does it get mobilized and does anything come of it? And cases like uh, the most recent one are trigger points which can produce a massive response. I don't think, unfortunately, the Iranian regime is in trouble, but this does represent a sort of an upswelling of dissatisfaction and a, and a, you know, a legitimate and appropriate response to a tyrannical regime that's oppressing its people. You said you don't think the Iranian regime is in trouble. Iran has seen protests before. Uh, maybe like in the U.S., there's less interest in theocracy in cities, more in rural areas. How much of Iran's population do you think supports Raisi's description of his country as having an advanced social order? I think it's really hard to know what's going on inside the broad uh, uh, Iranian public's mind. They don't necessarily see things the way we do from the outside, but at the same time, they don't necessarily, they aren't entirely quiescent. So uh, unfortunately, the Iranian system, like the Russian system, is not one with easy mechanisms for mass feelings to be translated into actual policy. So even if there is a lot of discontent, that doesn't uh, presage a, an immediate or even imminent collapse of the regime. Mm. Nahal, any take on this or how much popular support there might be for democratic and religious liberalization short of collapse of the regime? I think a lot of this is generational, um, especially because Iran has such a large population that is very young, something like under 60, per, uh, more than, uh, around 60 percent is like under 30 years old. And so uh, there's just a real frustration about having to stick with the rules and regulations of a revolution that happened before most of the people were even born. Uh, and, you know, the more oppressive the government becomes, the more uh, a sense of frustration there is among the youth who 
are aware of what's going on elsewhere in the world, of the freedoms they have elsewhere in the world. And when you have a very large Iranian diaspora, as you do, um, you know, those stories about the freedoms elsewhere do reach the youth of Iran, who also are suffering from sanctions and other sorts of frustrations with this government uh, that isn't just about cultural freedom. So all of this stuff comes together. Uh, but again, I, I also agree that the regime is pretty deeply rooted and it's the type of regime that's hard to overthrow. Gideon, how unusual are the protests in Russia and how much do you think they represent popular opinion about Putin and the war right now? I think the protests in Russia are even more unusual than the ones in Iran, uh, because this is not something we've seen very much of in uh, Putin's Russia, particularly uh, during wartime. Uh, But unfortunately, again, it doesn't represent any kind of imminent threat to the regime. What it does signal is that there are multiple forces that Putin's confronting uh, at home that are at odds. So his nationalist base is eager to prosecute the war further, but the apathetic majority, there are a few liberals who are truly against it, represented in the protests, but the apathetic majority, the silent majority that really is usually silent and has accepted a deal in which it doesn't get involved in politics uh, in return for letting Putin handle things, is nervous about the possibility of a full-scale mobilization. And so Putin is trying to figure out how to raise more forces in order to fight the war while not antagonizing the broad population that has no interest in going to a full-time war footing. Nahal, do you think this call-up of 300,000 reservists, not quite a civilian draft, but leaning in that direction, more coerced military service when so many Russians are dying in battle in Ukraine, could be a political turning point there. We know from our own history in Vietnam, right, that the draft, and I again say this isn't a civilian call-up, it's just reservists, but it's massive, 300,000 people. A lot of them thought they were done with active military service. And so we know from our history that something like a draft can be such a flashpoint. And reportedly, Russia has already suffered more troop deaths, an estimated 80,000. In one mainstream media report I saw yesterday, that's more than the Americans lost in Vietnam, the whole war, which is approximately 58,000 over all those many years. Um, And, you know, those losses affect that many families. So, Nahal, any take on what the protests are or could lead to? Yeah, you know, in in the past, uh, the mothers and wives of Russians who have died in past wars, uh, in the Soviet era, for instance, during Afghanistan and other things, they have been major drivers of change uh, in policy in Russia. But this time around, it, it's a bit tougher uh, because there's so much control over the media uh, that the Kremlin has. There's a very heavy handed approach uh, to the demonstrations. If you demonstrate, I, I believe it's like you can get 15 years in prison. We're seeing reports that a lot of protesters, anti-war protesters over the last couple of days are being taken to stations and immediately drafted uh, into the fight. Uh, and so it's one of these very strange things where it's all about how much of a balance Putin can strike. Can he get enough people from areas that aren't particularly strong, like the rural areas, the poorer towns, uh, as opposed to uh, places like Moscow, which are kind of his strongholds and where a lot of the elite li- live. And if they don't Uh, feel the pain, they're not necessarily going to turn against the regime. Uh, And how much of this 
he can control uh, on the media and what gets out there. The fact that we're actually seeing some videos emerge about people saying goodbye to the men in their little villages as they go off to fight again, um, that suggests to me he might not have as much control as he thinks he does and that this could uh, fracture his support. But one of the key questions, too, is how much support he retains within Russia's armed forces uh, and the groups of, of men who surround him uh, who have certain levers of power beyond just the business leaders and oligarchs. We're talking about the military men the, uh, and other folks and whether that's going to affect his hold at all. It's one of those things where I feel like he's a lot weaker than he even realizes. But people have to kind of come to that realization in a certain critical mass in Russia before there's a turning point uh, and he can be removed from power. But even if he is, that doesn't mean that the war in Ukraine is necessarily going to end because there are a lot of people in, in the top circles in Russia who are even more uh, to the right than Putin is. Gideon, you want to continue on that? Agree, disagree, add something? So I agree completely. All I'd add is I think the 80,000 figure is for total Russian casualties rather than Russian uh, casualties. OK, thank you. Yeah, but it's probably around somewhere in the 20 to 25,000 killed, which is still astonishingly high. And if you had said, but, you know, the, and, but that's an interesting point, because the, the question at what point do these disastrous losses, which are indeed horrific, start to percolate and threaten the regime is a real question. And that's precisely why. Uh, Putin is in the bind that he is in now because the Ukrainians are fighting back and beating his forces, and he doesn't want to mobilize Russia's full latent war potential. So that's why he's squirming and trying to play for time and, and uh, figure out some way to muddle through until winter. Gideon, you wrote the book, How Wars End. I can't find one called How Wars Escalate, but what do you make of Putin saying he will use any weapons at his disposal and he's not bluffing. Is he bluffing? Well, the first thing I'd say is, if you have to say, I'm not bluffing, that's a bad sign, and it usually means you're bluffing. Uh, the second thing is that this is not unprecedented. It is humiliating and frustrating for a great power to lose a war, particularly against an enemy it considers inferior. Uh, and when you get in that situation, you go through uh, something resembling Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's uh, five stages of grief, uh, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Putin is doing, in other words, what we had to do, the United States had to do in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, acknowledge that an invasion that he launched with high hopes of easy victory is actually going to be a disaster and that he has to extricate himself. When the Nixon administration found itself in that situation in Vietnam, it too issued nuclear threats, and it too did things like bombing civilian areas to cover up its retreat, if you think of the Christmas bombing 50 years ago this winter. And so I think that Putin somewhere is, you know, the nuclear threats are stage two and a half of the uh, the stages of grief. They're, they're between anger and bargaining. The next stage is if the West can hold tight and essentially keep the pressure on without doing stupid things to escalate further or provoke the Russians, just keep the pressure on. As Nahal said earlier, this will force the Russians and Putin himself to ultimately accept the consequences of the situation on the ground, which is that the Ukrainians are pushing them back and the Russians don't have any particularly good answers for how to counter. Nahal, on Putin's implication that he would use nuclear weapons and that he's not bluffing, is he bluffing? 
Uh, you know, I, I would never want to take a threat like that without seriousness um, from anyone, uh, especially uh, a man desperate to cling to power. I mean, we've seen um, crazy men do crazy things before, and it, it's definitely possible. So I think it's one of those things where uh, if I had all of the world's <laughs> uh, intelligence resources at my disposal, I would be doing everything I could to make sure that if he tries to carry out that threat, that he is somehow unable. And I am confident that there's probably things happening behind the scenes uh, to try to um, defang that threat as much as possible. Uh, you know, and if it's not happening, it probably really should be and someone is not doing their job. And Nahal, um, the other thing Russia plans to do now is hold annexation referendums in parts of Ukraine, maybe more sympathetic to Russia, about maybe joining Russia. Can you explain the strategy there and if the votes will have any legitimacy? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that basically if if these referenda, which are going to be totally basically not real, uh, are held and then it's like, you know, 99% approve or whatever, this territory that is Ukrainian, uh, Russia will argue, well, it's now Russian. And so therefore, if the Ukrainians try to stage any sort of attacks on Russian forces in those territories, uh, Russia can claim that Ukraine has attacked uh, Russia proper, and maybe even uh, make the argument that this is somehow a NATO uh, or, you know, uh, indirectly a NATO attack on Russia. It just blurs the lines a lot more when it comes to this overall fight. It tries to uh, give Putin some more legitimacy that he can point to, to his own people saying, look, uh, these people want to be with us and now they're under attack and we have to defend them even more. And uh, he could make it, you know, an, another argument to bring in even more people uh, into his military so that they could pursue this fight further. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very tricky, but, but, you know, ultimately the world is going to see it for what it is. And I do think it could kind of erode Putin's uh, support, uh, especially among countries that are, uh, you know, somehow staying neutral at this point right now because they really don't want to pick a side. Uh, and so this could damage his standing with them. And already we're seeing over the past week, uh, he's getting criticism from some of his friends, from the Chinese, from the Indians, from the Turks who have tried to maintain some type of a decent relationship with him. And he's, you know, being even uh, stood up at meetings or at least, you know, being made to wait at certain meetings with Central Asian leaders. And that's not how you usually treat Vladimir Putin. So it suggests that people uh, around him are seeing that he is increasingly weak and vulnerable, and they're trying to take advantage of that. Jack in Ocean Township, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jack. Hi. Uh are there are there any people in the wings ready to pounce on Putin as soon as uh, they feel that he's vulnerable? Gideon, you want to take that? I would say highly doubtful, because if there were, Putin would have eliminated them. Uh, he is oh. one of these rulers who has been very concerned uh, to protect his power and uh, has engineered a state that relies on him. And nobody knows what exactly would follow a Putin regime. It would be some kind of probably likely a security regime continuing continuing rather than a democratic liberal revival. That doesn't seem to be sort of on the, in the cards for Russia right now. But I think that it's highly unlikely that Putin leaves power immediately. It's possible, uh, but we don't really uh, know. And in fact, 
what we want to see in an ideal world is not so much regime change immediately in Russia, because that would be a terribly destabilizing event, and, and but rather Putin's withdrawal. We would like to see a status quo ante and uh, end this terrible war. And the question is, how do you get there? And I think the answer is because the Ukrainians have proved so successful on the battlefield in transforming outside help into battlefield success, what we the, the easiest, best course now is simply to keep doing exactly what we've been doing, trying to deter further ex, uh, escalation while supplying the Ukrainians with the material they need to keep pushing forward. And if Russia continues to fall back, Putin may recognize that whatever his threats and whatever the problems of selling a, uh, a defeat at home and turning it into a victory, it would be better than the alternatives. And that's what we actually ironically seem to be on track for doing as long as the West can avoid hmm. uh, defeatism and despair and just keep keep holding the pressure on. So, Nahal, I know you have to jump. If you have time for a response, was he really kind of implying the end of the United Nations there? Uh, you know, I think he just wants it to become a more relevant and institution that isn't so often gridlocked. But look, you know, there is that old saying that it's when you blame the United Nations for the problems of the world, it's like blaming Madison Square Garden for the problems of the Knicks, right? It's it's a it's a venue, it's a forum, and the in, the member states are the ones who have the responsibility to act properly. And so I think in particular, right now is a very strange time because you have a permanent member of the Security Council, one that has a veto, uh, Russia, which is the cause of so many problems right now. And that is an unusual situation. And so it is one of those things where if you do want to reform the UN, as many have for a very, very long time with little luck, uh, now is the point at which you can do it to perhaps make a situation where you don't have that again, where you don't have someone with so much power within the UN system uh, being the cause of a crisis. Uh, but again, remember, this is a venue and the, the individuals, the members, states, the leaders are the ones who really ultimately hold responsibility. The Knicks were the last thing I thought were going to come up in this segment. Uh, of course, Mayor Adams yesterday talked about possibly moving Madison Square Garden to help improve Penn Station. Maybe that actually would change the course of history for the Knicks. Gideon Rose, Distinguished Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. And again, we thank Nahal Tusi, Senior Correspondent for Foreign Affairs and National Security at Politico. Thanks so much. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.